This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Within Arm's Length, The Extraordinary Life and Career of a Special Agent in the United States Secret Service. And the author is Dan Emmett, and Dan joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Welcome, Dan. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, it's a great honor to have you uh, with us. In short, Dan was assigned as a member of the Secret Service to three presidents, uh, both Bush presidents and, of course, uh, President Clinton, and we're going to get into details about that. But you start out talking about what happened to you when you were eight years old, when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, just the impact of that, and then setting this goal of becoming a U.S. Secret Service agent. And, of course, we all know that special group of people are committed and assigned to give their lives, if needs be, for that president, if necessary. So, obviously, we got not enough time here, Dan, to talk about all the things that are in your book. But let me just start with this question. Uh, why did you write it? Yeah, that's, that is a good question. Um, actually, over the years, very few books have been written by former agents. But uh, I felt the need to write the book uh, to counter some of the, the bad journalism that was out there about the Secret Service. Uh, some of the more recent books have not put the service in a, an accurate light, in a good light, and have been, I think, very unfair uh, to the Secret Service. Uh, some of the more recent books have also been nothing more than tell-all books about personal stories, about protectees of the Secret Service. So I thought that it was possible uh, to write a book strictly dealing with the career of a working agent for 21 years in the Secret Service. And I thought people might be really more interested in that than whether Hillary threw a lamp at President Clinton, which was was uh, asserted in one recent book. Uh, so primarily that, that was my reason for, for coming out with the book. Well, as you start your book, you're eight years old and President Kennedy is assassinated. What did you feel? What do you remember about that moment? Like uh, probably like everyone that was old enough to remember that, I remember exactly where I was that day. I was in the third grade. It was a normal Friday afternoon, and as I came out of school, someone said that President Kennedy had been assassinated, and I wasn't really familiar with the words, so I had to ask uh, one of my father's uh, delivery men that worked for him in his furniture company uh, who picked me up at school that day what that word meant. And he told me, and he, he verified that that was correct, indeed, that President Kennedy had been assassinated, was dead, and, of course, was no longer our president. So that had a very profound impact on me. And you decided when that you wanted to be a Secret Service agent. When did that occur? It actually occurred during that weekend. Um, during the course of the weekend, a lot of different things happened. 
uh, President Kennedy was flown back to Andrews Air Force Base and the coffin coming off of the airplane, that was sort of burned into my memory. Uh, then the accused assassin, Lee Oswald, was uh, killed by Jack Ruby on live television. And th the thing that really sealed it for me, though, was a photograph that came out sometime over the course of the weekend. And that photograph is fairly famous. I know a lot of people have seen it. It depicts Special Agent Clint Hill of the U.S. Secret Service on the back of the limousine after the fatal headshot, doing his best to protect the president and Mrs. Kennedy. It was really that photograph that made the really deep impact on me. And I, I remember seeing it, and I, I asked my father, I said, you know, who is that man on the trunk of the president's limousine? What is he doing? And my father explained to me that he's a Secret Service agent. It's his job to if necessary, be shot or take the bullet for the president in order to keep him alive. And I, I recall thinking, what what an important job. That sounds like a really, really important job, a really dangerous type of job and something that I'd really like to do someday. And, of course, that picture is in your book. I saw the picture, and it's a very dramatic picture, which certainly would have uh, just remained in the mind of of a young person, an older person. Now, you started out in the Marine Corps. I did. Um, actually, uh, you know, I had two primary long-term career ambitions in life. One was to become a U.S. Secret Service agent, but the other was to become a commissioned officer in the U.S. military. And uh, I chose the Marine Corps uh, due to the fact that it, it had the uh, physically the toughest uh, training regimen uh, just to get into to the organization and just wanted to really to see if I could uh, survive the training. <laughs> and obviously you survived. <laughs> I barely, barely <laughs> on some days, yeah. uh, but I did manage to pull through. It's like every moment, right? It's challenging. Practically every moment of every day that, uh, that I was undergoing that training. It was, uh, by the end of the day, I wasn't quite so sure if I was going to last even one more day. Now, uh, the CIA came after or the Marine Corps, or it came after your Secret Service agent service? Yeah, the, the sequence was uh, Marine Corps from 1977 until late 1981, and then Secret Service from May 83 until May 2004, and then the Central Intelligence Agency from June 2004 until uh, 2010. Part of a special, you were a special skills officer, which is now a part of the National Clandestine Service, it's called. That's correct. Uh, there are basically four main directorates in CIA. One of them used to be the Directorate of Operations, and they simply changed the name from the Directorate of Operations or the DO to the NCS or National Clandestine Service. It's just it's just one of the four directorates within the agency. You say in the overall description of your book, you list a number of things uh, that you talk about, that you write about in your book. Uh, one of them is serving on the counter-assault team. Now, what was that? Yeah, the counter-assault team is the U.S. Secret Service version of a counterterrorism unit. It's, uh, it's a very paramilitary type of organization within an organization. It's comprised of primarily former military and former police types uh, who are 
very good with uh, weapons and tactics. And the stated mission of CAT is to counter any attack on the president from attackers in a known location, rocket attacks, multiple attackers, or automatic weapons fire. Um, their job really is to stay and fight while the working shift that is immediately around the president covers him and evacuates him out of the area. Now, different assigned duties when you're within arm's reach of the president. Tell us some of those and give us some examples of uh, some interesting things that happen. Well, the people that are actually within arm's length uh, are the people on the working shift, which I was a member of for for several uh, years. And your job is to cover and evacuate the president. You are literally within arm's length of him. Probably the most challenging thing that we did uh, during my time, uh, this was with President Clinton, was protecting him during his morning runs uh, because President Clinton did not like to run um, in safe environments. He enjoyed running uh, through the streets of downtown Washington during rush hour. (laughs) Which would probably just about stop traffic or what? (laughs) It, it it would on occasion. Um, you can imagine driving yourself to work in the morning during rush hour, and you you look over to your left or right, and you see the president of the United States just running down the sidewalk with his uh, entourage of security. And how many would be with him in such a jaunt? <laughs> uh, that's that's one of those things that uh, I really rather not discuss. Okay. Um, All right. But there probably uh, I, I really I tend to stay away from things that would uh, sure. compromise anything that we did at that time or might compromise later on today. So were you able to keep up with him? <laughs> <laughs> I I can say truth that he never he never passed me. No, he never, he never passed did. You. Even though maybe sometimes you know the the ego of the person leading the run may want to do that, right? Oh goodness, that's now you of course flew on Air Force One. Uh, Constantly? Were you always up there with the president? Well, if you're on the shift that happens to be traveling with him, then yes, you're going to be on Air Force One. If you're if you're on the trip, but you're not on that particular shift at that moment, then you would travel either commercially or on a military transport aircraft. But uh, say you were working the 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. shift, and he left at 11 o'clock in the morning to go on a trip, then yes, you would fly on Air Force One with him. Now, you talk about a very uh, dramatic, dangerous situation uh, where you were sent to a room where President Clinton was meeting with President Assad of Syria. Tell us about that and, and of course, this dangerous situation that could have occurred. Yeah, it was uh, was a little tense that day. Um, President Assad traveled with uh, a great many security people. as I stated in the book, practically everyone in the country that was related to him probably worked for him, and I think he brought them all with him. But, uh, of course, they were all armed, and this gave us great concern to have the President of the United States in such a small room with so many armed Syrians. Um, first of all, we didn't trust them to begin with, but secondly, we knew that in a shootout situation, they were not surgical shooters. Their method was to draw and fire pretty much indiscriminately. So we couldn't have that. Uh, my shift leader assigned me to pre-post into the room, and then if um, if the Syrians drew their Scorpion machine pistols, which is what they were armed with, uh, then I was to neutralize them. That's an interesting term, neutralize them, yes. <laughs> 
Well, yeah. we had an agreement actually with them that their security would not bring weapons into the room. Oh, and, and then they did. They did. Uh, uh, people from uh, that region, you can present something to them like that, and they will generally say, no problem, no problem. <laughs> well, it's no problem for them is right. what they really mean. But they're in fact, they're really not even listening to you half the time. And it's a, just a known trait of their culture that they're not going to follow through on it. So typical of uh, of the Syrians, we we went into the room, and they were. it was obvious to me that they were armed, and I could tell from the outline of their jackets, what they were carrying, and a very dangerous little weapon they had. And, uh, of course, we couldn't permit them to draw those weapons in that room with the President of the United States. So that was my job that day to see that that didn't happen. Now, you had another uh, dangerous situation, could have been uh, tragic, fatal, uh, when you were with President Clinton on a bridge separating North and South Korea. Yeah, that one kind of came out of left field at us. We didn't really expect that, but uh, the president's staff came over one morning and said the president wants to visit what is known as the Bridge of No Return. This was uh, during a time we were visiting South Korea, and the Bridge of No Return is a bridge that runs perpendicular, and it connects North and South Korea. It's the bridge where all American POWs from the Korean War were returned. They came across that, as well as the the crew from the USS Pueblo in 1968-69. But uh, North Koreans owned the en- north end of the bridge and South Koreans on the south- southern end. But uh, President Clinton decided he wanted to visit that bridge. And so we, we went up there with him, um, and of course, and um, when we got there, we realized that the North Koreans were in violation of the agreement that no rifles were allowed in that area. They were armed with their AK-47s and, uh, of course, anticipating they were going to cheat. Uh, we brought along our M-16 rifles. <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were ready to do whatever we had to do uh, mm. so that he could, uh, he and the Office of the Presidency could survive. Mm. One of the themes in your book, I'd like you to make a comment on this, uh, you, you state, remaining true to oneself no matter the cost. Yeah, um, what I mean by that simply is um, a person in any type of career has to come to the decision within themselves how much of their own personal beliefs are they willing to compromise in order to climb up the career ladder. Um, I don't think that anyone really makes it to the top of any profession without having to compromise themselves to a certain degree, and that's just a, a given. And there are certain people stubborn individuals like myself that just refused to do that. And uh, throughout my career, I was, I, I was very, very reluctant or unwilling to ever, to ever do that, to ever compromise what I thought should be. And of course it was, uh, it did not, it's not a career destroyer, but it's, it will definitely impede a man from, from going up to the upper levels of management. Just in closing in the, uh, about a minute, minute and a half we have left, Dan. Uh, give advice to those like yourself many, many, many years ago when you decided that you wanted to become part of the uh, Secret Service. Give advice to those who may be thinking about that now. Sure. Uh, the thing that I would say to young people today that are thinking about that line of work is you have to make the decision, first of all, are you willing to take human life? Uh, secondly, are you willing to sacrifice your own life in, in exchange for that of a politician that you may not like, 
you may not uh, support his views. You didn't vote for him, yet it's your job, if necessary, to sacrifice your life. And it's they need to keep in mind that it's not for the individual, but it's for the office of the presidency. That's what you're protecting. Um, they also need to take into account the fact that it's going to be very draining on their personal lives, their family lives, because of the separation time, travel time, time away from home. There's a great many personal sacrifices that everyone has to make before going into that line of work, and those are those are just some of the things they should consider, I think. The title of the book, Within Arm's Length, The Extraordinary Life and Career of a Special Agent in the United States Secret Service. We've been talking with the author, Dan Emmett. Dan, tell us how to get your book. Yeah, it, uh, currently it's available on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and Books A Million if you want to go online. And it's also available through the publisher, iUniverse, uh, small letter I, followed by the word universe. And it's also available in uh, certain uh, Barnes & Noble stores, uh, although right now at this point I'm not sure exactly which ones you could find it in, but uh, they can certainly order it for you if, if you go there and uh, they don't have it in stock. It's also available electronically on Nook, which is uh, Barnes & Noble's electronic uh, version of a book, ebook. Dan, again, thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor to have you with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much. I, I do appreciate it. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle, and sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Donna is a charismatic market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore, people have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Box in the Corner, 
A Confrontation of Truth. And the author is David Sadring, and David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hey, hello there. How are you? Well, I'm feeling uh, kind of hopeful today, but in some ways, after reading some of your book, it drags me into real sobering reality. But at the same time, there is hope even at the end of your book. So I guess we co- we'll come full circle in today's discussion. <laughs> Let me read what you've written about your book. Rex and Amy lived a peaceful life in the little town of Elk Valley, raising their two children to be moral, upright citizens in a world on the verge of war. Elk Valley was an idyllic place far from the violence of big cities and troubled politics, yet even in the quietest of worlds, war can bloom. One morning, Rex woke with a strange sense of foreboding. Something was not right in his peaceful world. And on that fateful day, bombs fell on Elk Valley. Whoa, that is uh, obviously too close to uh, what could happen, I guess. That we could, you know, often fiction is reality. Yes, it, it really is. And I think a lot of it does come from reality. Um, maybe not as adverse as bombs falling on you, but uh, nobody knows what our reality is going to be tomorrow. Well, right, especially in today's world with so much uh, talk of war and wars going on, as they say, wars and rumors of wars. Now, David, what was the motivation to write this, uh, this kind of plot? Well, really, the motivation was the blindness and the deafness that we have in society these days about stuff like this. It's, uh, we've never, well, since the Civil War, we haven't had a war here on our ground, our soil. And I don't think, you know, from talking to a lot of people in public, I don't think that we have the, the kind of backbone that America used to have to survive such a thing. And I, pretty much based everything on that and that's why it's the aftermath of war it's not during it's not the beginning it's the aftermath of war that we have to survive in this land um a town being just decimated and you're the only one that's actually standing there looking at it all wondering where your family went and friends and neighbors so in this case uh, it's a grisly thing to look at it is and understand it's more than really to comprehend for uh, just most of us. We're just thinking everything is rolling along in the United States. Oh, yes, we've got some problems. But, you know, this is America. Everything will work out, right? Right. I asked a friend one time, I said, does anything bother you? And he says, no, it's all cool. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's until, you know, the axe falls or... Well, then it's hard to understand that, especially since 9-11. I mean, it's been proven that uh, we are vulnerable. Very vulnerable. In fact, we can't even tell how many people that really want to destroy this country are in our country. So, you know, vulnerability is a, you know, it's a loaded word. Yeah, our southern border, even with a lot of federal uh, border agents there, it's still, you know, it's still an open door. Uh, Very open. Yes. And, of course, Canada is wide open. (laughs) They can come through Canada. (laughs) Yeah, it is. You know, they've been good neighbors for so long. That's right. 
you know, when we're talking about a world like today, it's, you know, who do you trust? Right. And, um, you know, if they prove that they can just allow anybody over the border, then trust kind of gets put on the back burner. It's, um, it's more or less a, a defensive measure to guard that border. Um, good neighbors or not. So Rex, your main character, uh, has lost everything. He's lost his home, his wife, his daughter, his son. Uh, everything is gone. And how do you emotionally, spiritually, psychologically deal with it all, right? Is that where you're taking us with Rex? Pretty much. Um, you know, when you – and I've been through this to a degree, not the war part, but when you lose everything – you get very angry. Um, depression, I don't even think, enters it. I think you get very angry first and then depression. And that's basically where he goes. And when you put it into a, a idea where there's soldiers from some army, any army, um, fear will enter it. And the bloodshed that's around you at that point is what drives your thinking and you know he's looking at the destruction the dismantling of his hometown um he's looking at neighbors bodies just laying there dead um so you know he's he's wishing and hoping that you know the next bomb that comes down lands on him um which is what i think any of us would want i don't think we'd want to be sticking around if if everybody that we loved is gone Right. After holding your daughter when she dies, you know, it's it's not a pretty sight, and it's not a feeling that anybody wants is to hold the one that you love when she passes. Right. And it's it's a very profound feeling, and I know that feeling all too well. And, of course, so, when death hits like this, uh, it's not over. You've got to dig graves for those folks, and, and just the pain must be just beyond comprehension, especially when you're probably the only one to do it. Yeah, and in the book, he is basically the only one for a while until people start coming back to the reality that they have to survive this. Then, you know, he starts getting help. But he goes out and tries to help everybody that he can, but he's a he's a mechanic. He's not a doctor, so he's you know he's losing more than he's gaining there right. as far as helping people. So he yeah. blames God first, though, like most would have a hard time not uh, when such tragedy strikes. Yeah, you don't know who to blame, and God's the only one there that you can blame. You know, he's he's the only one. You can't look at the people around you because who are you going to blame? So you reach out and you curse God. You shake your fist and. And then pretty soon, it just starts coming together, and you're starting to see that, you know, it wasn't God, it was man. Yeah. And that God is there for him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He uh, he comes in there. We can't say very much about this, but maybe you can uh, share a little about this box he finds in a warehouse. The box is, you know, every. Everybody has got the capability of having that box. And I don't care who you are today. You have that capability, and it's called a memory. And if you go back in your life, or anybody does, um, you'll see the things that you've done right, done wrong, 
all of that. You go back into the history books and you remember what you've read and you can see the path that life has taken. And that's basically what it is. But the only thing that's different between this is, you know, like you or I would have a memory of everything in our life. This is a memory of our country and our world. And it all gets shown there, um, good or bad. And we make the difference. It's just like in our own personal memories, we make the difference. You know, if we want a memory that we're a bank robber, go out and rob banks. But if we want a memory that we were faithful to our families or faithful to our neighbor, then that's what we have to be. And that's creating the memories that are in our memory boxes. And this is basically what he sees out there. He sees this huge box and goes and investigates. And all that he has gone through is in that box. And all of the uh, atrocities of America or China or, you know, wherever is in that box. And he has to look at it. He has no choice. And that makes him sick because he has to live through it again, including the day the bombs fell. And then he meets this homeless man that changes his life totally. Stanley. Yeah, Stanley. He, uh, <clears throat> I patterned him after, after a real, real guy, um, smart man, but he was homeless. And, uh, he, uh, he probably knew more about life than that's going on today than probably a lot of people do in society. Um, but he, he befriends him and, uh, it's just kind of a, a little bit of a rapport that they get. And then, you know, he just decides he's got to trust somebody. So, you know, come on, Stanley, I'll feed you and give you a place to wash up and rest. And, and so he takes him into his house and, and does that, but he comes out uh, after washing up and getting the dust off of him. He comes out a um, kind of a different person, and I don't know if I should give that away or not. Um, <laughs> well, he becomes he, uh, yes, he becomes quite an inspiration, right? Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah he does. Um, he he definitely makes. You know, not that Rex was weak need to begin with, with bombs going off and losing his family, but uh, he definitely makes Rex kind of fall to his knees. And but he brings a different light into his life. He uh, he kind of helps him to see that you know there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and that there is hope, and all he has to do is keep faith and you know, keep his sights clear on the on the good and sooner or later it will come. And he also has another little friend that comes in too, you know, via Stanley. Um that she she helps out quite a bit and there's there's kind of a son daughter, you know, feeling there that that this gal has with Rex and you know, it kind of fills the void of losing his family. So there is a light to help him come back to life and uh, find purpose in spite of this beyond comprehension tragedy. Yeah, and you know, I think that's, you know, in a in a situation like that, you got to have purpose and 
you know, if you're losing everybody around you because you can't take a wrench and a screwdriver and fix them, um, there's there's no real purpose going on there. And this this girl comes in and kind of gives him purpose, and and through it, you know, things calm down a little bit, and you know, Rex actually does have kind of a good life towards the end, and. You know, it's, it's all brought on by Stanley and this girl. It's just the, the peace that they give him. One of your themes, you say, society's lack of a moral compass. Yeah, yeah. We have a very strong lack of a moral compass these days. Very strong lack. And the, the one thing that really bothers me, I think, the most in today's world is that we pay no heed to the fact that we have lost our moral compass. We can turn on the news anytime, any day, and see where, you know, we we don't believe in God. <clears throat> we act out in crimes like the children that have been killed by parents. Um, we, we watch the politicians just play games with us, and the only thing we want is whatever the politicians can give us. And we don't want to defend our freedoms, you know, which affect our grandkids. Um, and then there's the the sex on TV and prime time. Prime time used to not have any of that stuff. And now it's all over the screen. Um, I watch um, some old shows every now and then, like The Rifleman. Um, and in those old shows, you used to see mention of biblical you see mention of uh you know treating your neighbor right and you don't see any of that so yeah we've lost our moral compass here we just got a little bit of time left for some final thoughts uh, a controversial aspect of your book you say is the truth yes the truth is you know what we see um if you want to follow the propaganda or whatever, that's fine. You follow it. But, you know, if somebody speaks the truth, um, we tend to disregard that person. It's like, you know, tell your friend that you believe in God and see what happens. Um, when somebody speaks the truth, people tend to turn around and walk the other way. And sooner or later, they will have to confront it. Because the truth is truth. It's, it's going to come and haunt you. Um so you better believe it now, or you can deny it and believe it later. I'd the, rather believe it now. The title of the book, The Box in the Corner, A Confrontation of Truth. And the author is David Sadring. David, tell us how to get your book. Um, you can go to davidsadringsbooks.com or iUniverse. And uh, the website is, is there for anybody right now if they want to jump on there, and they can order books through there. And, and they can read a little bit about the book. And spell your last name for everyone. S-A-D-R-I-N-G. It's simple. It's just Sad Ring. Sad Ring. David Sad Ring book or books? Books. Books.com. All right. Very good, David. Well, we appreciate you being with us. On iUniverse Radio, thank you. Well, thank you. You take care. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. 
How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go To My Radio Show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to My Radio Show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to My Radio Show with Chris Holt, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, God, the Realities of the Creator. Our creation is not a mysterious malfunction. It was planned by a supreme intelligence. And the author is William Morea. And William joins us now from Brazil, from Rio de Janeiro. Welcome, William. Thank you, sir. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, you say this about your book. This labor of love, inspired by the great canvas known as the universe, explores the deep theological and philosophical questions that reside deep within our hearts. Who is God? What is God? How did the universe come to be? Well, those are big questions, William, and uh, you were motivated to do this. Uh, tell us about that. Well, uh, <laughs> all depends on which side of the rope you are, you know, because some people, the majority, they have it believed since they are children. Sometimes they pass from, from, from parents for generations, what they should believe or not. I embraced religion. I read every religion book in the world. I'm a first reader. I never go to bed, even one or two in the morning, and I sleep only a few hours. And uh, I want to know everything, as much as I could. So the only way to do it is reading. It's open the door to 360 degrees, because the, the, the compass has 360 degrees while I fly my plane. So if you stay just one degree, just one direction, you're going to land only what's on that direction. But if you go around in 360 degrees, you're going to know a little bit about everything. And it's something called more attention. You're deep on that. So I see so much diversities 
reading that uh, you could sometimes come to no conclusion. But I did. I looked the marvelous life in this world, like when my daughter was killed 14 years ago in Times Square by a truck in an accident because uh, the truck went on the sidewalk because she had no, no brakes. So she was the only one that got killed. After that pain was gone, after 15 days, I heard a voice, her voice, saying, Papi, life is beautiful. Doesn't matter what, because we are God's children. So I sat down and started writing a book, 120 pages, with that title. Life is beautiful, no matter what, because we are God's children. That means our pain is just momentary, because we live eternally. So 30, 40, 50, like she was 33 years in this planet, is like a second in our existence. So we have to learn. Everything we learn stay with us. And the big question now, I hear often, like uh, 60% or, or 70% of the Chinese absolutely just don't believe in God. I have friends, great friends, that said, I can't believe. How can you, you tell me about God? This guy exists. Why pain? Why death? I said, listen, he created us and put us in a school. I consider Earth a school for souls. Like he will come to learn. And the pain, everything that goes wrong is because we have to learn something. That's why you remember him. Third, look the infinite of the universe. Look at your nose. Everything is so perfect. How come nature uh, becomes so great, so intelligent by itself? Now, is it beginning somewhere? Now, are we going to know, to see God? No. He can never show himself to us. Why? Because we are not going to even believe he's God. So we have to wait. More years pass by, more we learn, more we know, through pains, whatever. Then we start realizing the grandeur of our existence. God, when he created us, he took a little bit of atoms from here, from there, bingo. It's all in the book. And he says, gee, he's someone who's going to appreciate the marvelous of the creation. Now I have a family. And how did my family looks look like physically? So after a while, he looked in the mirror and said, gee, they are my kids, so they got to look like me. That's why the Bible says, and I agree 100%, we are a copy of our creator. Five fingers, nose, ears, everything. Yeah, I call it, reading the, the 27 books of Thomas Paine, is common sense. We have a common sense. We have everything to open our doors to wisdom. More we read, more we learn. So don't be afraid of reading. Reading is one blessing to ourselves. More we learn, more we can keep to us. More happy we become. In any circumstance, I cried 15 days straight when my daughter was killed. Nobody couldn't believe it. I'm so spiritual. With my age, 65, when she died, how come I couldn't control myself? It's because the pain is given to us for a reason. Mm -hmm. On that pain I had, I sat down, I wrote another book. Just look on the internet, Barnes & Noble, whatever site. It's a poor consolation. Why? Reading, learning, knowledge. More we know, more knowledge we have, especially when we go digging ourselves. And that's it. 
When I went to the Costa Concorde, I went to do feminine feet. I do precise like it. Perfect. Because I love to draw in paint since I was born. I have this talent. So after I make 25 drawings, on the day 13 at night, the ship started become like a uh, rice shell in the ocean. We had a 90 miles an hour side winds against the ship. Everybody runs to the cabins. I went upstairs to the 13th deck. And that's when the book was born, Between Hell and Heaven. But I have the gristling of the galaxy illuminated my papers. I had visions up there, including I saw the ship tilted to overturn. The next day I told the, the captain, watch for the 13th. He said I was a Brazilian nut. To be quiet, or the next port of call, he was going to ship me back to Rio by airplane. <laughs> so I promised it to keep my mouth shut. That was 26 months ago. So on the 13th of this year, January, the Costa Concorde sank, tilting to the right. Okay. Now, I thought in the beginning he had it's happening on the 13th of I wrote one year after I wrote the book. No. One year after I wrote the book, 13 months later, comes to 25 months, this happened to the ship. When my uh, grandson, is 24, called me up and said, Grandpa, Costa Concordia sank on the, on the 13, and everything you do in life is 13. So I said, you are kidding. So I opened the internet, I looked at them next day, was all over the world, you know. It's, it's still a big thing, you know. Make the titanic history a... Uh, just a, uh, a small tragedy com compared to what could have happened if uh, Concordia had sunk in, in deeper water. And uh, even I wrote something because I'm going to be in Las Vegas being interviewed by the, some producers of Hollywood. So I wrote a little pitch about the 13. Could I read it? Please. Okay. God, the reality of the creator, was born December 13, 2009. Next day, I told the captain, I had a vision of the cruiser tilting to the right and sinking. He said I was a Brazilian nut. Concordia sank 25 months later, on the 13th month after the book birthday. Also, that was in the 13th, and the ship went down on the 13th of this January. Is Earth going to be a part of ashes? See the movie poster by the author. I made a poster. I put a Rio de Janeiro. It's considered God's postcard. A, a night picture uh, behind the, the, the Christ with open arms is a 95 feet statue with white stones visible for at least 50 miles away on the top of 2,200 feet rock right in the middle of Rio de Janeiro. Then comes the bay. Then comes the sugar roof. It's a 1,500-feet rock where you can go by air cables. It's an incredible view. So I put the last explosion, atomic explosion in the Pacific, but had a huge ring uh, right in the middle of the bay. And I have uh, saying the 11 commandments to deal with the complexities of a changing world for worse. Atoms destroy the body and... Uh, I can the body. My God, I forget what I wrote. And that immorality condemns the soul. See this movie today, because there's still hope before we become a part of fascists. Mm -hmm. 
Now, this poster, anybody look at it, scream and say, oh, my God, I got to see this movie. God has me feelings. So I have a great idea to make it the biggest movie ever. I can guarantee it. Because in my 78 years, seeing everything in this world, analyzing everything, watching everything closely, as uh, we have now 25,000 atomic bombs, one explosion will be enough to destroy the planet if human. Because the fallout is going to go around it. They know that. So when the Brazilian president, Mrs. Dilma, was six months ago on the own UN in New York, first thing she said is, we know we have enough atomic bombs to destroy the Earth 1,000 times. And we just need one to officially destroy it. Why are you going to wait for tomorrow to, you know, to put everything together and finish the atomic and use for energy? Nobody said one word, nobody moved one, one, one muscle. That's me, the trap is here, okay? Everybody's afraid of a uh, huge wave, uh, earthquake, and uh, it's the way maybe you could survive. But in atomic explosion, you're going to become just like part of fascists. There's no way out. So this leaf is also, this book is also a warning, okay? And that's my last warning, because 78, 79, it's not a piece of cake. I have my luggage ready for when the Lord calls me up, of course. I just hope he holds his horse for what, because i got a lot of stuff to do yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have about uh, three minutes uh, for this interview. William, uh, you say we can and must follow the rules which are not unchangeable as we continue our path as soul or spirit. Now, give us some thoughts on that and... And as we conclude our interview. When God created the universe, everyone knows that. And you better believe it. Uh, he put rules in everything. He gave us the free will. Because we, we are not his robot. So mercifully, see how, how great he is. He let us do whatever we want. But we have rules for us in a society over here. You do something wrong, you go to jail, you suspend your license, this and that. So imagine the rules of the universe are perfect. So he don't change those rules. He give us penalty for you to pay. Like we go to jail, only we finish our, our payment to society, they open the doors for us. He give another chance. So God always will give every one of us eternally another chance. Okay? But we must pay the wrongness we do. That's the only way you're going to learn. Okay? If we don't pay anything for anything wrong we do, so we're never going to learn because we don't feel what you do to somebody is wrong. So the rules are here. Third, what's your question after that? Yes, yes, very good. Uh, you also say this book is for the one seeking logics on life and not found logically anywhere. Of course. Uh, I go to churches. Uh, anybody church invites me. I go gradually. I listen. And I talk to people privately whenever they want to talk to me because I'm not there to, you know, to change things. I go to learn too. So I find out everybody's desperate looking for an answer. Why death? Don't matter how you beg God, how you use medicine, the pain still on. 80% of the people in the planet has chronic pain all the time. That's why they, they open holistic uh, clinics all over the world. Because the doctor don't know what to give to the patient more. The pain's still there. So, why? 
Why is everybody happy? Of course not. That's why the majority of people in, in the planet do not believe in God or want to make believe they do not do not believe in God. But deep down they do. Because everything is so perfect. Everything, no matter what, even the pain is perfect. Everything is so perfect in the universe. Everything is atoms. It's a composition. It's a number infinite of atoms, as in, in, in numerous infinite type of atoms. Atoms to make the glass, type to make our body, type to make our souls, whatever. Everything is atoms, thanks to Einstein. He's the one that led us in, in this type of division of the, the, the matter. And uh, so we have to understand deeply. More you, you understand science, more you understand religion, more you want to understand our existence. We live forever. So whatever happens at the moment, so look, I'm 78. I know I'm not going to stay over here too long. Could live another 10 years, maybe, five. Or tomorrow, it depends on if he calls me or not. But I know my time is getting closer. I feel so happy on that. And I feel so happy every minute, every hour of my life, I'm still writing, doing things, talking to people, trying to alleviate the pain. Tonight, I'm going to have dinner in my apartment over in Copacabana, overlooking the beautiful beach called Copacabana Beach, seeing the Christ up in a rock, 2,200 feet high over there, illuminated at night. Always a little cloud hanging around. I look at and say, thank you, God, for my friends. Now I'm going to talk to them. And always somebody comes to ask me questions, deep questions, because they are not happy. Because over here it's too hot, it's too this and that. Could it be a war? Could it be this? Or the, 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 the sin is going to fall in your head? So insecurity is guaranteed. Pain is guaranteed. In death, nobody can run from it. So you have to understand it. More you understand deeply, happy you become. Happy, happy you are, that is a creator, that love us. Otherwise, you give us the free will. We can even talk that he don't exist. He don't care less, because he knows one day you're going to fall in his arms. Read the book. It's all there. I, I can guarantee it, okay? William, we, wanna, <laughs> we have to wrap up here. Uh, some great thoughts, some great philosophy, and uh, some great wisdom, obviously. Uh, we cannot argue about God, the title of your book, God, the Realities of the Creator. Our creation is not a mysterious malfunction. It was planned by a supreme intelligence. William, tell us how to get your book. Yes, sir. Also, we are not supposed to be born soft and die. Our life is an eternal evolution. Our soul, because we are in the body, then we, our body, we lose the body, but we now become spirit. It's a more or less fluid body. Right. As good as solid mm -hmm. as the one we have right now, can you touch? And the other way of life is, is no disease, is, is no germs to, to affect our, uh, our body. Is a better world, take my words. William, we're going to have to wrap up. I've got to have a. Yes, gonna, we have to start another uh, radio show, live radio show. So, uh, tell us how to get your book, real quick. Oh, you you look the inside, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and also when you're there, you can see my other books. And uh, is one called Christ to Wisdom and the Holy Prophet. It's only 640 pages. I wrote about uh, 40, 40 nights. Because I like to write at night. All right, William. I've got to leave here. Uh, thanks for being yes. with us on yes, iUniverse Radio. Thank yes, you. Sir. Thank you very much, and God bless everybody, okay? Thank you. Bye-bye. So long.
iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.